we continue with the question, what do we know about the truthfulness of God from the Bible? And proceed to answer further objections that have been made against God's truthfulness. We have seen that the moral nature or character of God is summarized in the terms, God is love. By this we understand that God has chosen to guide all his actions by the law of perfect benevolence toward all. Thus we have seen that the Bible declares that God affirms his own truthfulness as the very foundation of all his activities. And certainly a God of love must manifest the attribute of truthfulness. We've also seen that the Bible affirms that God is the source of all truth or the final authority of truth. And in the third place, we have seen that all of God's works and dealings with men are said to have been in perfect truth. And in the fourth place, we considered the Word of God, the Bible, as the incorporation of God's truth toward man as furnishing man with all these spiritual instructions that he needs for his own salvation and welfare. Then in the fifth place, we had proceeded to examine certain objections that are raised against the absolute truthfulness of God from some biblical representations of actions or reactions or commands of the members of the Godhead. And so we come to this second objection that the Bible declares certain unconditional purposes on the part of God where events were spoken forth as certainties, which did not in fact come to pass due to God's repenting of these purposes or his changing his mind as to bringing them about. It is charged that if God always knew that he would not bring to pass these threatened punishments, God should not have revealed them as certainties and caused his servants to declare them as certainties. And thus the truth concerning these events was not recorded nor spoken. If God foreknew with absolute certainty that he would not bring to pass certain events, we would expect that they would have been recorded as conditionalities and not as certainties. We may cite a few examples of these objections that are raised. In the sixth chapter of Genesis and verses 5 to 7, we read these words, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. This sad chapter reveals the fact that when God saw the awful development of sin on his beautiful earth, he repented of his having created man on the earth. A literal Hebrew rendering might read as follows, And regretted Jehovah that he had made man on the earth, and he grieved unto his heart. And said Jehovah, I will wipe off man whom I have created from upon the face of the ground, 
from man unto beast, unto creeper, and unto fowl of the heavens, for I regret that I have made them. Here is an unequivocal assertion on the part of the great God that he was so overwhelmed in disappointment over man's complete renunciation of the dignities of his created endowments and total disrespect for his creator's love and happiness that a firm resolution was made to terminate man's existence. What else can be made from this astonishing revelation? In great mercy, 120 years would be granted because of God's long-suffering, but then the mighty climax would come, for God felt that man was fully determined and confirmed in his rebellion. If God always knew that he would not totally destroy man, then the truthfulness of this statement that he would is open to question. But then we have a happy change in the total disappointment of God in the words, but Noah found favor in the eyes of Jehovah. Because of him, God resolved to spare a remnant of his creation, man and creature, and begin anew after the unhappy judgment of the flood. Allow God to change his mind, and the objection to truthfulness immediately vanishes. In the 32nd chapter of Exodus, verses 7 to 14, we read concerning Moses, where he had spent 40 days on the mountain with God, and had received the law, the Ten Commandments, among other commandments of God. As he came down from the mount, the terrible sin of the golden calf horrified his observation. As he came into the wilderness camp of the children of Israel, having been absent from them for forty days and forty nights, this was an awful apostasy to the idolatrous gods of Egypt. God's patience with Israel was so exasperated that he resolved to destroy them and start a new nation from the descendants of Moses. Here are God's recorded words to Moses, taken from an interlinear Hebrew rendering. I have seen this people, and behold, a people hard of neck is it. And now leave alone to me, that may glow my anger against them, and I may consume them, and I will make thee for a great nation. Notice here God's firm asserted purpose and plan. Moses in great humility denied his own possible fortune and interceded for Israel. Then we read, and changed his purpose, Jehovah, concerning the evil which he had spoken to do unto his people. Or in the common version, the Lord repenteth of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Now it is said that if God always knew that he would forgive Israel, then why did he solemnly affirm his purpose to destroy them? Allow God to do what obviously is revealed, that he changed his mind and purpose of full judgment and extended mercy, and the objection is indeed removed. Instead of a problem, we have a great challenge to intercessory prayer. 
in the second book of Kings, chapter 20, and verses 1 to 7, we read these words. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass, afore Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, behold, I will heal thee. And on the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs. And they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. Here in verse 1 it was recorded that the prophet received his instruction from God to tell King Hezekiah the sad words, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. There were no conditions attached to this pronouncement. The king with great humility prayed to God for an extension of life, whereupon God changed his mind and added to his life fifteen years, granting him to be healed of his affliction. Allow God to change his mind without the certain foreknowledge that he would do so when he pronounced Hezekiah's immediate death, and all is graphic and plain. But if God always knew that Hezekiah would not die when he said he would, how shall we answer an objection against the truthfulness of the record? In First Chronicles chapter 21, verses 14 and 15, we read these words. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel seventy thousand men. And God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld, and he repented him of the evil, and said to the angel that destroyed, It is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. God had given King David a choice of the manner of punishment upon him and upon Israel for sin. David chose to fall unto the direct judgment of God because of his confidence in God's mercy. Thus we read in verse 13, Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So David had great uh, confidence in the pardoning kindness of God. We are told in verse 15 that God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. And as Jerusalem was in process of being destroyed, God was moved as he beheld and changed his mind and stayed the destruction. Allow this simple statement of fact and no problem of truthfulness exists.
How important and vital is it, as we read the Bible, that we understand the very simplicity of the statements that are set forth? God gave the Word of God to the world to impart to them, in the simplest possible language, the essentials concerning God's great being, and the essentials concerning man, and his fall, and the essentials concerning salvation, as to how the Lord Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And so God's precious word has been established down through the centuries, and is the bulwark of truthfulness, upon which we can rest our very life and activity. We think of the words of John the Baptist concerning our blessed Lord as recorded in the third chapter of John, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. And in verse 33, He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. How thankful we are for the great and loving and profound and truthful God. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, receive thanks for these loving revelations of thy great life and being, and how we thank thee that thy mercy is extended if men will only repent and exercise faith in the death of Jesus for their sins. May many do so today. In Jesus' name, amen.